Good morning. Uh, my name is Rosemary Klein. I work with Industry Media, which is a business affairs consultancy for um, television and film. I'm your moderator today, and I would, we'd all, the panel, before I introduce them, like to thank you for coming out 9.30, the morning after the party, for a session on finance, uh, opening the vault. Um, I've produced this session in past years, and this is the largest room I've ever had, and this is the first early morning start I've ever had. So um, looking at tele linear television, I'd have to say the art of scheduling is not dead yet. <laughs> I'll learn to advocate. Um, there I am. <laughs> um, my speakers today, would not necessarily in order of how they're up, up on the board, so I'll go through in order. Uh, right next to me is Abby Arya from Sandbox & Co, a digital educational publishing company. Tim Patterson, uh, the CEO of Larkshead Media. Uh, and they do IP management um, um, consulting, focusing on development, finance, and sales. Um, and then Caroline Percy from Ingenious Media, she's the investment manager there. Rob Stapleton, the director of commercial banking at our Boothnot, our Boothnot Latham Private Bank. I'd pretty close, we were practicing. Ben Richardson from 560 Media, he's the director of operations. 560 Media um, focuses on secondary um, royalties collection, and Ben will explain more. Um, Ellie Carter is the director at Paper Chatter Chatterbox, and Ellie is an amazing entrepreneur in the live events sectors. Um, also in the program, there was a promise that we would follow the not-for-profit sector as well in children's media. Um, my speaker in that uh, event was, I'm, was um, the CEO of Zoe Logic Dance Company, which is a dance company for boys. It's in Southampton. Unfortunately, she had a very tragic family event last month. And as her board member, I'll step in and very, very briefly, for those of you who work in the not-for-profit performance sector for children, you do know it's very, you understand how much a hand-to-mouth existence it can be. Uh, I was a stage manager in children's theater in Canada before I went to law school. And it's very similar, I was just talking to Tim about this to, um, production financing in TV and film, and that it's very project-based. And what I've really noted in uh, dance is um, it's a very hand-to-mouth existence. And unlike in TV, where in your production budgets you write in a line to cover some overhead, that doesn't happen in the not-for-profit performance sector. It's something, my, as a board member, I'm trying to influence them more to do that, to write in um, overhead. And, um, you know, I know dancers don't eat a lot, but <laughs> The, the, the artistic director does have to eat, does have to have a place to live. So it's very much based on foundation grants um, and on arts council grants and in building up your company to the point where you can get um, long-term three-year arts councils funding to make sure overhead's covered. So apologies, not an in-depth um, analysis of not-for-profit sector funding um, and how to open the vault to get more monies for, for that, but it's um, a brief summary. We're going to, I'm going to move over and start with Abby Arya of Sandbox & Co, and I'll pass on the clicker to him. Sure, uh, very little to click. Um, okay, I'm gonna start with the, the slide. Um, so before I get into you know, uh, opening the vault, I mean, essentially, what does Sandbox do? Um, so we, I mean, I and my partners, uh, we basically came out of Pearson, education company, but at the same time, we all had a background either in consumer good industry or uh, in uh, media industry, so Viacom and Discovery and so on. And uh, when we were together in Pearson, we had this thesis that uh, 
obviously education is boring, uh, but learning is not. Um, and how do we take our media experience and our consumer experience and build something which is very much learning focused, uh, mixing media and entertainment and learn or education together. Uh, so we jumped out, started Sandbox, uh, with the intent that we are gonna invest in businesses that are at cusp of media and education with a very clear thesis that we'll focus on millennial parents and their kids, uh, with a very clear focus that it'll be digital uh, only, uh, whether online or apps or uh, you know, uh, any other media, but it's uh, uh, non-linear uh, in a way. Um, and over the period, we've built in uh, 13 properties in our portfolio, which includes some of the properties we own uh, and some we invested in. Uh, so companies like Hopster, Tiny Bob are companies we've invested in, and a lot of uh, and Fundbrain we've invested in, and a lot of others are companies we own. Um, and if we look at any of these companies, they are a mixture of uh, gaming, uh, but with education lens, like PopTropic or Fundbrain, uh, which is uh, you know kids play the games, but they are all educational learning based, or uh, Fact Monster, Family Education, Teacher Vision, which is providing content, uh, videos in short form and long form. Uh, again, focusing on learning, but in an edutainment way. So we've recently partnered, uh, I wouldn't say partnered, but we've recently sourced a lot of great videos from a business called Kidspiration, which goes out, for example, to, uh, to uh, off, I would say offbeat, uh, career, uh, you know, uh, companies. So, for example, they'll go to the ambassador of US and UK and say, "How's life uh, being ambassador?" And kids don't know that, right? So, we are taking that sort of content and putting it on our uh, publishing site so that more and more kids can uh, see that. And then, uh, you know, Tiny Bob, which is more STEM-based learning, app-based, and uh, focusing on STEM. Uh, and so on. So, you know, the portfolio is very much gaming, uh, edutainment, and uh, online publishing, but with a focus on uh, media uh, a lot. And aggregate, uh, in aggregate, we reach about 20 million kids today. Uh, so, you know, uh, we believe roughly around 15 million families uh, based on, uh, you know, the tracking we can do in the back end. So, we, you know, uh, and we want to grow more and more. So right now, most of our audience comes from US. We are trying to grow it uh, more internationally. Uh, and that's where we are. So as we look at investments or buyouts uh, of these companies, what do we really look at? Uh, so uh, again, as, as, as I mentioned, we operate with the investor lens. So you know, we are we happen to be investor, but operators at the same time. So anything we do invest in, we say, Okay, is that really, really going to scale? That's the first thing. Uh, and to, to, for us to be able to see whether it's going to scale, the biggest question is what's the differentiation? What's the unique IP? What, what is the entrepreneur bringing to the table that cannot be replicated by others? Uh, second, how differentiated is the engagement? I mean, if we look at the example of Tiny Bob, and please do download the app, helps us. Uh, <laughs> The apps are very much, they don't, I mean, if you look at any of the app like Human Body, I'm taking example, it doesn't tell the kid what to do. Kid has to download the, I mean, you download the app, you open it, and you figure out yourself uh, what the human body is about. So, you know, you keep removing pieces of 
you know, the, the body and it keeps going deeper and deeper. So, you know, if you start removing the chest, it shows the lungs and then you remove the lungs and it shows the veins uh, and so on. And kid is learning as they're going. And it, it, it shows you how the blood is pumping, how the air is coming in and so on. So it's very experiential. It's very different. We look at Hopster, uh, very different. I'm not sure how many of you attended Nick's presentation yesterday. He was here. Uh, Nick Walter, but I mean, you know, um, we look at that and it's like, okay, how does that compete with the Sky TV's free app or, uh, you know, uh, YouTube and so on? And then uh, you start realizing that, okay, the, what is really differentiating is not just the safe environment or the COPPA or KidSafe, but more importantly, the engagement, the, the trust that parents can get, which is, okay, it's making screen time a win for both parents and kids. Kids can watch a TV show, but then they have to, to learn something at the end of it before they can watch the next TV show. And that sort of is a differentiated engagement which other apps, which are just pure streaming apps, don't offer. Uh, the third thing we look for is, is the idea validated? Has the entrepreneur gone out and checked that you know, it's not just a script or an or a app idea, or, but has validated it, has created an MVP or a minimum viable product shown it to 1,000 plus kids, tried to sell it and see if it can really be sold or bought or downloaded. And for us, that validation is important because if it's not validated, our whole ultimate goal of helping scale will not happen. Um, KidSafe, I mentioned. Uh, so we basically generally like to be in COPPA environment or KidSafe environment. Uh, because we are building that ecosystem for millennial. Uh, and also, I mean, the regulations, right now the new EU regulation state, you can't even collect more information without telling um, the consumer what information you're collecting. It's coming out. So, you know, it's getting tougher and tougher in the regime, and we want to make sure we don't collect anything that puts us on the front page ever uh, of any newspaper. So it has to be kids safe. Um, and then the last thing we look at is, you know, that the distribution angle uh, of that content can go beyond the primary channel. So if the primary channel for which we thought, like if we look at Tiny Bob, the idea was it's an app, you can download it from App Store, you can use it. And that's the primary channel, the App Store on Apple uh, and Google. But can it go beyond? So we are now looking at extending that product into schools. Uh, by creating a school product, I mean, you know, complete school product where teachers can measure the learning outcome. They can start using uh, the product to, as an extension and supplement to education and so on. Or if you look at Hopster, it has extended beyond the app into Apple TV and, and other uh, areas. So, you know, can it be distributed beyond? Can it be, uh, you know, so that for us, those are the four or five things we look at as we think about investment in. Uh, the ideas. Um, and then if we look at what are we really now focusing on, um, for us, 21st century skills is becoming more and more apparent. Um, what is becoming clear is that you know, um, the jobs we are doing nowadays didn't exist when we were growing up. So it's, it's like you know, you, the, the school system is not able to, to predict what's going to happen in 20 years or six years old today when they'll be 26, they won't know what the world would be like. So the best we can do is to train them on skills like collaboration, creativity, and so on, which helps them be ready for the future. And we are looking for that sort of content all the time. STEM becoming more and more important, so whether it's coding skills or under deeper understanding of 
uh, of uh, science or maths uh, by combining elements of nature with the classroom learning uh, is of very much interest to us. Uh, virtual reality. So we are already focusing a lot on taking PopTropic as a game and converting it to both virtual reality and augmented reality. Uh, it fits well. And uh, you know, right now we are talking to Yosemite National Park in US to say, hey, can we look at using your uh, platform, which is the space you have, uh, and creating a full virtual reality island around it? Um, Are you saying we, we don't have to travel to Yosemite Park? I could wait and watch Old Faithful that you can experience do, That the you can do today, reality. actually. So Google has made it possible. So Google has got... With the uh, smell, too. Yeah, uh, <laughs> smell. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, Google has already got these classroom tools, okay. which you can go to Yosemite, you stand there, and you can see the whole thing. We are taking it to the next level by saying, now you are the character in oh, the game. Okay. So why don't you travel and solve the mystery? Okay. So making it more engaging. Uh, and then, uh, obviously, we are expanding internationally. So for us, local relevant content, uh, very relevant. Uh, we have identified Middle East, uh, South Africa, and Asia. Uh, Southeast Asia is a key growing market. So for us, that locally relevant content. Uh, and lastly, I mean, you know, uh, we can only get penetration in schools and uh, homes if we can demonstrate a clear learning outcome. Uh, we are finding that, you know, Everybody is challenging that, okay, I use this app, but is the kid really learning something? So we want to make sure that you know, new content we produce has a clear learning outcome. We can demonstrate that if you watch this video or if you play this game, you are going to learn something. So that's where we are. So how, how do you test that you're getting a clear outcome? Is it so, direct feedback? So what we digital? do is we have three or four mechanisms. One, we have a panel of teachers. Mm -hmm. So we have a panel of 30 teachers who come to our uh, offices regularly, mm -hmm. uh, once a month, where we demonstrate to them or showcase to them the new uh, products that we are looking to you know, uh, partner with or invest in and ask for their feedback. Okay. And these are people who have the right pedagogical expertise, the right expertise to look at the content and see what the efficacy of that would be, and so on, so on. Uh, secondly, uh, basically we, we get kids in the office, so okay. we do that every quarter, and let kids play the game. And then we ask them quiz questions, so you know, see if they did learn something at the end of it. Okay. So those are the two mechanisms, primary okay. research we are using right now. Thank you very much, Thank Abby. You. Um, Tim, um, could you please describe the Lark's Head media model and uh, how you look at um, assisting producers of new content yep. and, finding, and financing and developing their content? Of course. Uh, good morning, everyone. So Lark's Head Media, put simply, is um, an IP management agency. Uh, and by that I mean creators come to us with program ideas and we help them make, make the shows. That's the theory. We cover a, a range of things, everything from development all the way through to helping finance package, but also to the sales process. The, and so it is quite a pick and mix, but of course the fundamentals of, en of making anything is about how the hell is it going to be financed. It's the, it's the area that is hugely complex, it's becoming more complex in, in, in my view, and coming from a broadcaster side of things, going in now on the other side, it is about understanding about what this jigsaw looks like, how can we put it together, your contacts and where can money be found, because there is money out there, but it is far more complex than the, than the days of just writing checks, unless, of course, it is a Netflix relationship, but that brings another set of principles to the table. So Netflix aside, 
the whole idea of, of finding money, um, I will focus on one element today. There are three words, actually, I want you to remember, but also I'll focus on an element. So the three words I want you to remember are confidence, likability, and timing. The area that I'm going to concentrate on is going to be about how can you engage with a broadcaster, an anchor broadcaster in the UK, in order to unlock everything else. And what we have found is that the whole idea of giving enough confidence to a broadcaster to sign up to your project, apart from the fact the odds are often very stacked against it, but how can you, and what is the process about going to a broadcaster and allowing them to get a sense of, if I sign up to this idea, is it going to make me look good? Is it going to produce money for the company? Am I going to be able to sell it up? Because often everyone has a boss. So I would think, I would say, you know, what is so important is to be really clear about what your, what your, what your idea is, why are you talking to a particular brand, so what essence of your brand will, will marry to their brand. As a commissioner, uh, before I, 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 I created Larkshead, there were about 30 things I was thinking about that would sort of unlock uh, an element of confidence for me to then share it with the rest of um, and I was, I was working for Nickelodeon, so the rest of my Nickelodeon colleagues internationally. So the confidence bit is key. Uh, I could go on for hours about it, so think confidence. Likeability is important because often you are going to be working with those individuals for at least three years. So if they don't like you, um, the, and the relationship is probably sort of over, and thus that leads back into the confidence side of it. The timing element is key because people move around. So um, it's a bit like one man and his dog. You have to herd everyone into, into the pen and get it signed off. If you don't, you'll lose a sheep. Um, we know that, you know, and it's, I've heard a lot of stories about you've engaged with the broadcaster and you're nearly there and that particular broadcaster, that commission has gone on to another company and you have to start the process again. So timing is very, very important. So once you start the process, get everyone in the pen and sign it. So you have to be very tenacious. You have to, it's, it's a very time consuming experience. And Caroline is going to go and to uh, explain a little bit more about the, the finance plan. So I won't go into any details there. So those three words that I'll leave you with are confidence, likability, and timing. There you go, thank you. Pass on to Caroline. And I think this, that's a really good lead-in to Caroline at okay. Ingenious for any of, uh, any of us here who have um, closed um, production financing with Ingenious or any other. There yes. are other companies out yes. there as well. There, there is very much the three things. You, you, you have to have confidence in the project. Mm -hmm. You have to like the project. Yeah. And the timing of herding all the due diligence and all the agreements into one pack is, is, is a magic moment exactly. in a producer's life. Exactly, um, and good morning everyone. Um, I've been talking quite a lot over the last couple of days about <laughs> timing and when to come and talk yeah. to someone like me. Um, I'm always willing to have conversations with people at very early stages, but um, in truth, when things really start to crystallise is the point where, if you imagine you're on a plane, it's just before the uh, fasten your seatbelt light comes on and you're sort of coming in to land. So you've already, you're talking to your commissioning broadcaster and you're, you know, quite extended stages with them, you've got an idea of your tax break and um, you're, you're talking to distributors, so your finance plan is coming together. So this is, this is one of our shows, uh, it's Lily's Driftwood Bay and here are some more that we've been involved with. So 
uh, Watership Down that's uh, for next year, that's BBC Netflix, Splash and Bubbles, PBS, um, Teletubbies, Clangers, so all very recognisable brands. Um, just talk very briefly about who Ingenious are and what we do. So Ingenious is one of the largest media funds in Europe. We've covered 200 TV productions and over 650 hours of programming. Um, I'm here to talk to you about children's, but we do cover other genres. We also cover film, feature film financing as well. Um, essentially, we, we work in two ways. We can cover just a tax credit and we can work with our loan fund, and that's just purely uh, loaning against a piece of collateral, so like a TV tax credit or Netflix. Or we work with EIS funds, and we have EIS qualifying production companies. Um, so we would work with a producer who would assign the rights to our EIS company, and the EIS company would cover most elements of the budget, so licence fee, tax credits, um, and we can cover a certain portion of gap as well. So here's a sort of typical finance <coughs> plan. This is probably quite familiar to you all. So when you come to me, you talk to me about um, all the elements of the, the plan, so tell me when the primary broadcaster is going to pay, um, or, you know, the, the payment terms are very important. Um, you've probably got a couple of pre-sales, you've been talking to distributors, so hopefully they will have ponied <coughs> up some money themselves and put in a minimum guarantee um, that might be payable on delivery. Tax credits obviously can be delivery um, and six months beyond for the payment. You might want to defer some fees and there might be a gap in the budget. So you'll come and talk to me, you'll explain to me exactly what the finance plan is um, and then we can, we can start a conversation. Um, with EIS, we, we don't charge sort of an interest rate, it's a, it's a production fee. So when you start talking to me about um, you know, the, the project, I can start helping you understand how much the costs are going to be once I've looked at your cash flow, cash um, going out and the cash coming back in, which people do often forget to tell me that bit. <laughs> do you want to get the money back? Um, in terms of the gap, what we do for that is we will look at uh, sales projections from your distributor. And what we need to understand is that um, there will be two to one net coverage. So, for example, I put in a £300,000 gap here. So I would look at your distributor's sales projections and once their minimum guarantee or advance has been recouped and their commission and their costs, um, the gap in the budget, uh, the, the sales projections would need to show two to one coverage. So 700,000 of sales, we would cover that. If, if once uh, we've looked at that and the sales projections say 300,000, that's a one to one ratio and we probably wouldn't look to cover that. So. It's, that's sort of a whistle-stop tour through, uh, through the finance plan. Um, as Rosemary said, there's, there's a lot of contracting in place doing all these deals, and I won't bore you with all of the directions to pay. It's, it's uh, far too early in the morning. But if you want to come and talk to me one-to-one -one and uh, talk to me about a finance plan, I can, I can give you some pointers on, on how we work more specifically. Um. Before anyone even comes to talk to you, do they have mm -hmm. to have their commissioning broadcaster agreement in place or, or, or a binding um, terms of... No, it, advanced stages of, okay, of discussion help. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have conversations with people at very early stage and they say, we've got this and I can help talk to them and okay. say, have you spoken to this person? Have you considered 
um, which distributor you're looking at. So I can okay. help you shape things, um, but I, I can't actually literally put my money where my mouth is until um, the broadcasters are on board. Okay. At this stage, um, Abby, could you please leave the stage and move <laughs> sure. to your next gig? Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Be very careful now. Thank you very much, Abby. Thank you. Anne, okay. Do okay. anything else so, you wanted to add, Caroline? Um, so, just a few other pointers. Things like Netflix, you were mentioning, and uh, we've covered Netflix original commissions um, in Latin America. So, um, even as an original commission, they were paying 20% on delivery and then quarterly thereafter. Yeah. And we can we can work within those parameters. In fact, Netflix is is um, a very easy company to work with. We've worked with them on many projects, um, and and we've got a lot of experience. So again, if you find yourselves talking to Netflix about uh, your commission, do come and talk to me as well because. Um, you know, it's not often that people can cover a three and a half million dollar budget uh, during the production phase and be repaid over two years after, uh, down the line. Yeah, because my understanding with Netflix as well is that you have to provide dubs for... Yes. Yeah, and that's quite, 20 quite expensive. 20 different territories. Yes, it gets very expensive. It and does. And not cash flowed. And the other thing with, with Netflix is certainly if you are looking to make gains in the licensing and merchandising world. Um, not all the time, but the majority of the time, Netflix will take all the rights. And the other flip side of that is the, because we don't know data-wise how the performances are of our shows on Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, the retail market do and still are very hungry for data. So if you are out there and it's a licensing and merchandising model, then the best thing to do is have a, 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 a like a linear experience and then into Netflix because then you get the reach. But um, so that's something to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. um, just some other key points that I, I'd like to talk about. We um, we are based in the UK, but we do work with producers all around the world. So um, just named up a few. So we work with people at like the Jim Henson Company in the US. Um, we work with uh, Cheeky Little, who are based in Australia. We work with quite a few Australian producers actually. Um, and the UK, so so we're we're um, we're very much um, opposite of Brexit. We are we're very global. Uh, we can cover tax credits all around the world. So uh, at the moment we're on the film side. We're looking at things uh, tax credits in Mauritius and uh, Fiji. Um, I've also heard of one that's in Poland as well. So um, if we've never dealt with that tax credit before, we'll do some due diligence and we will look to see if we can work with them. Generally, we can. Um, another frequently asked question is, can we only cover gap in budget? And no, we can't. Uh, we, we're not an equity investor in that mm -hmm. way. Um, and that's it. We've, we do have very small pots of development money. Uh, pro I probably can do about five projects a year. And so I can talk to people about that. Uh, but obviously, that is um, it's, uh, very limited. But happy to talk to people about development. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good to know. That's yeah. a potential. Bit of funding. So I've got some friends who are going to say hello to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not that scary, yeah. son. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the picture okay. from you. Thank you very much. Um, now, Rob, as a private bank, I know you have tons of money to give away. And actually, it's the complete opposite. Rob, Rob is here to help you take care of your production money? Well, I mean, we have a big bag of 18 pound notes uh, all available <laughs> uh, at the bank. Um, I suppose uh, I've been uh, a banker looking after owner-managed independent media businesses for, for 20 years. 
and at Barclays and Coots and two and a half years ago I moved to uh, a spank that no one can pronounce which is called Arbuthnot Latham uh, and set up the media team so I, I thought what might be useful would is really just kind of uh, give you an idea for what how to talk to a bank manager so if you're in that scary position of having to be face to face with one uh, just to understand what's in their brains and how best to to deal with it when it comes to when it comes to financing so I think the first kind of fundamental thing is um, you have to know the difference between debt and equity, you know, debt and investment. And a lot of people say, why don't you invest in that business? That was, that's a great business. They can be, you know, businesses can do really well. If, if, I put a, if an investor puts money in and hopes to kind of double their money, um, for a bank manager, we, we don't invest. Um, the, the thing that we do, uh, and this just shows how sad a bank manager's life is, is we lend you some money over, let's say, three years, two years, and we charge you a nominal fee, and, and we charge you some interest. And so the best thing that happens in our life is that you pay the interest when it falls due, and at the end, the loan gets repaid. That's it, you know? So it's a, you know, that's our, we do a big jig at that stage. Uh, and that, for, for that, we kind of get a, our profit, our margin, is between two and four percent. So, you know, if I'm an investor, I'm looking to double my money. If a bank manager, I'm looking at that kind of profit margin of around two to four percent. And as such, I have to really be careful and, and I have to make sure that I'm not taking undue risks. Even if I see some things which I've seen some fabulous projects and clients have done supremely well and I wish I had my own money in it, uh, you know, they do supremely well, make, make millions, but I've just got my 2 to 4% uh, return on my nominal fee. So it's understanding that is the first bit. You're, the banks aren't there to invest, they're there to provide debt and just have that, uh, that loan repaid um, over time. So that's a kind of a, a key bit. Again, when banks are looking at deals, when I'm looking at a deal, and the kind of same as you, Caroline, I'm, I'm wanting to understand how that project is being funded. So who's putting that money in and when? And again, for my position of 2 to 4%, I'm not taking any risk on the gap side. So I have to know, essentially, that when I'm putting my money in, that my bit of money allows the project to be completed. And so, again, on that basis, the bank, you know, horrible banks, we say we want to be last in, first out. So everybody else puts their money in, whether it's, you know, equity, whether it's soft money, whether it's other investors, they all put their money in and then we lend the money to get that program completed. So that we will lend against pre-sales, you know, broadcaster contracts, we'll lend against most international broadcaster contracts, we will lend against UK tax credits. Uh, we talked about the chance of going to Fiji to see a bit more about that tax credit, but so far, um, EasyJet don't go to Fiji. Um, and and we, we will also lend against Netflix contracts as well. But from our perspective, we are, again, even more prudent. And we are saying, well, once the program is completed, uh, the delivery risk is out there, is finished. We will, we will look to lend against this money that's going to be paid over two to three years. 
So that's a kind of that's the kind of key things that a bank is is looking for. We're not, I say, we're not looking to to invest. We're just looking to get this money repaid and understand quite clearly what you know how that financing structure is going to be in place. Now, it is the herding sheep thing that we talked about, and so you can't come to us with it all totally finalised because something's going to come along and kick your legs away just when you think it's perfect. But we can have those conversations earlier on, get an idea for it, and, and work, it from, work it from there and say, well, this is an area that you need to, to look at and complete, um, and have you considered that? So I think, again, a bank manager's role nowadays, a lot of the time, whilst we, if we can provide the loan, we will do, because we'll make some money. But if I can't do it, if I'm not the best person to do it, let's say there's an element of gap, or there is this Fijian, uh, Mauritian uh, co-production thing going on, uh, then we would say to people, well, actually, let me introduce you to Caroline or whoever it is to make sure that the, the deal progresses. Because at the end of the day, if we can go from something that's uh, theoretical to real and people are actually making it, everybody starts making some money. And from a bank's perspective as well, we will look after the production accounts and we will, you know, don't have to feel sorry for us, but the bank will make money uh, whether we're lending to you or, or whether we're looking after your deposits or doing foreign exchange, etc. So those are the kind of the key things. Um, I suppose there's only other kind of one kind of major tip as well. Sometimes we see business plans and people say, well, you know, can I have some advice on business plans? How much detail should I do? Um, again, I, I would say the business plan should be relatively short and sweet. It's a bit like a CV. It's just to get you through the door so we can have a, a kind of conversation. Um, it tends to be, business plans tend to be read uh, at night. So imagine your bank manager uh, in bed reading it. Uh, so please keep it short. Uh, and the, and when you put financials in, I've put struggles with this idea of financials and I've got to put lots of detail in and they show that after 10 years there's enough money to buy Guatemala. Uh, just, just, again, keep it really simple. Um, we're bank managers, we're cynical beasts. We're all gonna go, I just don't think that's gonna be true. Uh, but if you can put your assumptions that you use, then we can have that discussion and you don't need to extend it out for 20 years. Just look at the actual project or the business itself uh, and just do it relatively short with your assumptions and then we can have that conversation. And then, as I say, if we can do the lending, if we can do the financing, we will do, that's fantastic. Um, if not, we'll direct you to, uh, to people that can do that particular project for you now, and we will look after your day-to-day -day banking. And I think in summary, yeah. for Rob, Caroline, and Tim, I'm gonna pick up on Tim's three points. You have to have confidence. Banks are gonna be very risk adverse in funding. Um, you, have to be, you have to have likability. There has to be something about that project that you feel secure and you actually like to go through. And we've gone back on timing. Timing is everything, and you want to be first. Banks want to be first in, last out. And I think we've already come up with last a. Uh, sorry, you want to be last in, uh, last, first out. No, yeah, yeah, last sorry, in, first in. Last in, and that's and last in. Sorry, last in is because then you can do a total risk assessment. But no if one. we were last in, then 
everybody else has got their money that's yeah. at risk and we just know that if we do the one thing that we need to do which is put our money in mm -hmm. and the producer make, has got therefore enough money to make that program and deliver it mm -hmm. and the key thing obviously is once it's delivered then we start to see the money come back from the pre-sales and the tax credits and yeah. the others. That's and part of Ingenious's due, due diligence will be you want to see that money is going into a secure production trust account or a CAMS, CAM of some sort. Exactly, exactly. And, and also, you know, we will do due diligence on, on any parties who we haven't already dealt with. And generally, we have dealt with most broadcasters and yeah. tax credits. But, um, but in terms of uh, factual entertainment shows that I've done, I was with a, a US channel then, and I had to do an awful lot of due diligence mm -hmm. on them, just because if they go bust and um, we've loaned, you know, we've we've cash flowed against that contract, then uh, then that's on us, yeah. and, and we'll have to foot that bill. But it's interesting what you're saying about Netflix because sometimes they do put in their contracts things like um, they will their license fee depends on being on a certain slot, uh, and and that's yeah. very you know we have no control over that. You know yeah. I can't say to the BBC well well, you've said you're going to put it in this slot, so in two years' time when we deliver, you're going to stick to that. You can't, it's, it's, it's regular, you can't on Afghan regulations. That's the, it's up to the channel, has yeah. to, is the only one who can schedule. Yeah. So, yeah. so again, we, you, know, you, you might look at that and think, oh, that's too risky in case mm -hmm. it doesn't work, in case BBC change their mind or, or whoever, other channels are available. Um, <laughs> but, um, but we would look at that and we, would, uh, we might take a risk on that for a, a small premium. Mm -hmm and we would cover that, okay. that CP. And I think if we do a session next year on co-producing in Fiji and Mauritius, <laughs> or any of you out there have a project you think you could now twist into a co-production to Mauritius or Fiji that, and I'm sure Caroline yeah. and Rob would be very interested in yeah. hearing from you. would be willing to do that through video link, I suspect. Yeah. No, you have to do the due diligence and do a field trip okay, right yeah. on the ground. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Get EasyJet to start flying there. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to move on now to um, Ben from 560 Media. And Ben actually does have the capacity to unlock a treasure chest of money for you <laughs> at the end of the right cycle. So I'd say, Ben, it's not, yeah. it's not the sexy beginning when they're in development no, the and they're going to the anim... I know, it's, it's so exciting to go to the animation studio or work with your script in, in script manner and deal with the broadcaster. Everything's done. It's not only yeah. produced, it's so not only it's delivered. It's been sold, it's been it's delivered. Been sold, it's been transmitted. It's been broadcast. So yeah. secondary television royalties are um, generated from a television broadcast. And um, it's important to be aware of these royalties and not leave them on the table or sign them away without knowing it. Um, so there are three key rights which you should be aware of. Um, these are cable retransmission, private copying, and educational copying. Uh, cable retransmission, this is where um, a cable operator will take a free-to-air TV signal and simultaneously retransmit it to their subscribers. So for example, you can watch BBC One on your Sky or Virgin Box. And in some countries, those cable operators will have to pay a license fee to a collecting society and the collecting society will then pay those royalties out to the content owner. Um, so for example, in France, TF1 generates a royalty from France, Belgium, Luxembourg, Switzerland. Um, so it's important to be aware that these, these incremental revenues out there to collect. Um, retransmission is available uh, in Europe, North America, and Australasia. Um, 
The next right is private copying, um, or in the old days, used to be called blank tape levy. So this is where a levy is applied to um, recordable media, so hard drives, uh, tablets. And again, these taxes are paid to a collecting society, and the collecting society will distribute those revenues to the content owners. Um, and private copying is available in Europe. Um, and the third right is educational copying. So this is where a school will pay a license fee to be able to record content from television and uh, show it to their pupils in the classroom. Um, so these three different rights can generate extra income um, from the broadcast. And it's important to be aware of them when you're doing your uh, negotiations and either um, with the you know, commissioning broadcaster or with your distributor to either you know, be aware of these and either hold on to them um, or you know, commercially assign them away. Um, that's a very uh, brief uh, overview of what secondary rights is. So when should a producer come and approach you so, at 560 Media? Um, well, it could be either after the programme is completed and is already out there, or potentially if you already have a, you know, pre-sales in place or a commissioning broadcaster in place, we could potentially offer an advance to um, advance what we, what we estimate the royalties would be for that programme. How far back, if a, if a producer has a has a library uh, so, of content, how far back can you um, register and search? In general, uh, it's kind of a three-year window that you mm -hmm. can go back and collect if you've not collected previously. Um, some countries it go back a bit further, but gen the general rule is three years. Um, in general, just, and this is just a word of advice for myself, for those of you who enter into um, dis distribution agreements, and, and Ben can't speak out on this, but look very clearly that you are not assigning away your, your secondary rights to your distributor, who will pay you on collecting, but remember they will take their distributor's fee on that before you get the money, when there yeah, may exactly. be options of you to directly file to get that money and eliminate your distributor's cut. So I do apologize to distributors out there. Um, it's just sometimes if you're very comfortable in having everything rolled up with your distributor, including secondary rights and music publishing, other times it's better, you'll make a better deal if you do separate. Uh, deals with specialists. And I think even just from dealing with my clients, a number of them didn't know about it, yeah. which yeah. is so kind of frustrating. It's free money, isn't it? Yeah. People don't know about it or give it away without realising they've given it away. Yeah. So it's just being aware that these revenues do exist, which are generated from the broadcast. And it's for the audiovisual content, it's not for the music, which often yeah. gets confused. You're right, yeah. Um, and in Australia, the educational rights can, can total up to quite a little booty. Massive yeah. Uh, yeah. income stream. We're collecting on three years worth. Yeah. And it's just looking, to me, it's, it's look at it as, as kind of, I say, free money and profit. It's almost that yeah. when it comes kind of through and uh, ongoing, it's a nice thing that it doesn't have a lot of, exactly. It's not a, not a cost really associated, no material costs. It just yeah. comes to you. Yeah. Good work, Ben. You deliver money to the producers <laughs> afterwards. Um, we're going to move on now. We're going we're to end with Ellie as our speaker. And Ellie's an entrepreneur. Um, and she's asked me to open with this. So are you all prepared?
jump on a giraffe and make your way to Raveroo. Now, now, Ali, for those of us <laughs> who ha have small children or had some small children, <laughs> bedtime was often a Raveroo every single night. So, <laughs> I know. so Ali has both built businesses, yeah. both two businesses. Yeah, so uh, I am uh, the co-owner of a business called Paper Chatterbox. So um, I'll talk about Raver in a second, but uh, our, our main thing is that we're an events and, ex and an experiences company. So we are totally in the live events industry. So it's really interesting to hear about, obviously the broadcasting isn't what I do at all. So um, we, however, do work with IPs and we turn IPs that are sometimes founded in books or from TV or um, occasionally from a, a high-end venue or attraction. Um, they may have IPs or characters that then uh, Paper Chatterbox comes in and makes their uh, brand enhanced by a live experience. So um, that could be turning um, Shaun the Sheep from something that is an animation into a uh, live event called Championships, which is still going uh, around the UK and is a kind of sports day, Shaun the Sheep, interactive, fun experience. Um, or it could be um, a venue themselves that have basically pockets of money that they want to spend by adding value to their offer. So, for example, um, Eden Project or Kew Gardens or uh, London Zoo. Um, these are uh, companies that um, want to try and shift more tickets. So they will put on special events or festivals where they're either selling a more premium ticket or they um, expect you to be able to help them uh, either improve their brand or basically uh, sometimes have an association with a brand that suits them as well. So um, those people have, you know, between three and a half or £10,000 a day, something like that. And um, Paper Chatterbox works with um, National Geographic Kids. Uh, we're working with Swashbuckle and we work with new IPs who are trying to work out should they have a live presence or not. And some, I was speaking to Tim earlier, some, you realise from IPs, you kind of, try and work with them and you realise actually for the amount of money you might have to spend to get them to a place of um, live or experiential or experience or theatre to make it a really quality experience can be can just be not cost effective so I suppose Paper Chatterbox we've tried to be cost effective because ultimately the reason we're doing it all is to be a commercially viable business <laughs> it isn't just because it's they're fun to work on or you creatively are stimulated, it has to be commercially viable. So um, 
that you can that works in a kind of consultancy sense in that part of our job is that we go and venues like Kidzania or um, London Zoo or Heritage, they will potentially employ us for an amount of time to work out what they can do, if anything. So that's part of the business. Um, and because we were working with so many brands, we decided to create our own brand, uh, a live brand, and that is Raveroo. So um, last February, we launched Raveroo at Ministry of Sound in London, and um, we put on uh, raves for babies and toddlers, anyone who's under the age of, kind of 10, but the whole ethos is that everyone's welcome, the tickets are cost-effective, and uh, we, it's about not um, giving anyone a reason not to come, if that makes sense. So in terms of a brand, we've tried to go kind of quite uh, wide-spanning. And um, it, A, it's really fun, makes people happy. You know, we have amazing feedback from parents, but ultimately, um, the reason it happens is because we secured investment. So we were a company that set up a, a, another company to get investment. So we have done a lot of things <laughs> to try and get that investment, which includes, uh, you know, initially kind of SEIS and if you're a new company, if you're a woman in business, if you're an under a certain age, if you're over a certain age, if you're a parent, if you're not a parent, there's all these little pockets of money and people are really great. People advise you if you go to, um, I personally really enjoy going to conferences and um, uh, like just like this and um, coffee mornings, you know, networking events um, to try and work out who and where to go. So time management is hugely important. Um, so when we first had the idea, I'd say it probably took six months of going to meetings and all sorts of meetings. You know, we're talking people that we feel, thought might have an interest in what we were doing and want to invest in the business. But we were going to really, really ridiculous, um, uh, you know, like one Fleet Street, those addresses. Like we and we, so me and my business partner, we go in and we're quite... Uh, quite confident, but equally, we're not, we don't have loads of experience. You know, we're not, we're not, um, we're not, we don't know how to nail everything. So we, we've learned a lot. <laughs> and um, the, the one thing that um, has helped us is quite early on, we got an investor who was essentially acted as a kind of mentor. So even though we were kind of getting into it, you, and I think you can get a mentor, you know, your mentor doesn't necessarily need to invest, but, um, he taught us a couple of things. And the main thing he taught us was you need to create the right picture. So if you don't create a picture that shows profitability for your idea or your project or your business, then no one's going to want to invest in you because they don't want to invest in a lifestyle. So you have to make a realistic picture. And if the picture isn't investable, then you're not going to ever find investment <laughs> because it's, um, you've, you've got to show that you're going to be profitable and how are you going to do it and in what time scale you're going to do that thing. So really early doors, we were going, we had you know, a couple of ideas that were floating around and I remember really clearly going for, <laughs> going for an investment chat and handing a business plan and looking at it 
and just sliding it to the side. <laughs> because it just wasn't, they immediately saw, like you say, a quick CV-esque business plan. You can immediately see. And you'll know if it's interesting because you'll get another meeting or they'll set up a, those connections. So if people put you and start getting excited, not because of, not essentially really because of your idea or, or, or who you are, it's, it's got to be profitable first. And then the idea and who you are become really important. So um, I'd say that was, that was the first thing that was great, creating the right picture. And then the second thing is what me and my business partner call, did you get the memo? <laughs> and getting the memo is, it's quite funny. It's basically, um, when we started trying to get investment into the business and when we um, ended up with investment, um, we, then there's never enough investment either, obviously, because you, know, you, 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 you don't want to get so much investment, you can never pay it back and you can never double the money or whatever the terms are. But equally, you, know, you could always do with a bit, bit more. So um, we suddenly started talking to other people in business that we realised weren't getting the memo. And that means that they were flogging a dead horse on something that they were really putting their life savings or really risky situations where you're just kind of putting your head in your hands and thinking this is just really scary. Because even though when we started our, our business and we became entrepreneurs, we, and we left you know, really nicely uh, comfy, like full-time jobs, basically. And we decided to take that plunge. But ultimately, it was because on some level, we knew that over a certain amount of time that we could, be, we could really live hand to mouth for a couple of years if we needed to. Or if it didn't work straight away, that we had a year where it meant that we could still pay our rent. Or that if someone was going to offer us money, that we absolutely would trust that person so much. And if we didn't trust that person, that we would walk away. And we have walked away from more investment than we have had investment because we didn't feel right about the people or the situation is the better word. Um, so I think that getting the memo is just about being really brave, sticking to your guns if you can, but also having an exit plan. And that exit plan needs to be um, a point where you go, I'm walking away from this because essentially, as it's not commercially viable, I'm basically doing a hobby. <laughs> So if you're going to do a hobby, that's one thing. But if you're going to have a commercially driven, successful business with investment, you need to know that that is going to work for all parties and that you trust each other. And um, I think that's it, really. I think that's I think that's a, that's a massive part of it. That we're all, you know I'm only talking from individual experience as an individual person having a career with a wonderful business partner. Um, and, and luckily, we've managed to get two really big rafts of investments to try and make our business work. And we're about to go into merchandise. We've got deals with um, Rave Roo going to Ibiza with Chewy and First Choice Holidays. We've got deals with VTech, uh, where we're doing sponsored events. We're looking for big headline sponsors to get it even further. So we've got ambition, but we've also got an exit plan. And the exit plan is, if it doesn't work anymore, we're going to sell the business. <laughs> or we're going to partner with a different business. So... I think that's part of, uh, part of it as well, like the emotional attachment. You've got to know that it's okay to let go <laughs> as much as it is to have a go. And I suppose that my, is my last point is we're just having a go. And it might work or it might not work, but I'm proud of the fact that I'm doing it.
and that's it. <laughs> and, and I think that, that Ali's really pointed out a very good point. Uh, it, trust flows two ways in investment, mm. not just the risk, you know, you're, you're doing a risk assessment on who you finance, but also who, you're re, who the person is receiving the finance. And I'm talking from a very specific part of the risky side, you know, yeah. this is not when there is, there is no money there, no one's, you know, you're going to investors going, you could lose everything and you need, they need to know that that is a possibility, but equally that you try and convince them that that you believe in what you're doing and you're not going to go anywhere and you know you can be locked in into all sorts of contracts and um, as long as you're happy with the terms then go for it but um, uh, you know our, the way we've got our investment is from is from conversations and uh, networking and business contacts it's it's not from securing something uh, officially and then loaning against that it's it's it's, it's very much a risk but Ultimately, it means that you, that person taking that risk, owns a large part of the business, uh, and can then have a much, much bigger return. And um, we're really lucky, you know, we, we are lucky enough that we've we've got Paper Chatterbox that works with these brands, and that we've formed our own brands, which we now own. So all of the benefits of being a brand owner, and all the commercial benefits of being a brand owner, we're now getting because we know how to run it, and we own the brand, so we own everything. So I like that, <laughs> I like owning everything. Um, so it's just portioning out what equity you want to give away. Um, how you value your business is really important. Um, you know, people will value it differently to how you value it. So um, yeah, I suppose that's, that's it really. That is absolute, going back to one of the points, timing. Perfect timing, the red light has just come on. And I'd really like to thank our panel of speakers and thank you the audience for coming out. Thank you so much and thank you everyone, really appreciate it.